Section 19 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Melitzia. The Golden Age of Polyphony. The deep vital forces which had for two hundred years been urging Italy to magnificent achievement broke through into music during the course of the sixteenth century. Music was, as she has always been, the last to respond to a general movement, but the response, when it came, entailed an entire reconstruction of the art. All through the century the process of reconstruction was active. It was, however, gradual in its working. Only toward the very end of the century a few bold explorers and experimenters turned their backs upon the past, cut loose from the old art of music, and started in to build with new stone and new tools a new art. We have had to do in this chapter with the old art, on the one hand with influences which boldly altered it, and with new developments which were set free through these alterations, on the other with its ultimate perfection and consequent end. The invention of music printing just before the beginning of the century had a powerful influence upon the development of music. The beautiful manuscripts in which early music has been preserved to us were the work for the most part of monks, and are another evidence of the restriction of music to the church. With the invention of printing came a liberation from this restraint. Music circulated through the lay society, all kinds of music, both secular and sacred. It stepped from the dim, vast cathedrals, and went among the people, and entered into their homes and into their lives. The world of men and women welcomed it and changed it, formed it to the expression of their joys and sorrows. The superhuman intricacies of counterpoint and canon, little by little, withered and fell by the way. Ulrich Hahn of Ingolstadt, in 1476, solved the problem of printing music by means of movable types, but his invention seems to have languished until other enterprising men took it up. In Italy, this was done by Ottaviano dei Petrucci, born in 1466, at Fossombrone, near Ancona. Petrucci, one of the first monopolists in the business of printing music, was, like Aldus Manutius, a man of good birth and fortune. Some time before 1498, he had established himself at Venice, and obtained from the municipal council the sole privilege, for twenty years, of printing figured music, canto figurato, and music in the tablature of the organ and lute. This meant that, so far as Venice was concerned, all the published lamentations, frottole, motets, and masses were to issue from Petrucci's press. His first publication, in 1501, was a collection of 96 pieces, most of them written for three or four voices by Ockegem, Hobrecht, Joscan, Isaac, and others. The printing was done by a double process, first the staff, then the notes, in a small quarto with fine black ink. The parts stood opposite one another on the open page, thus. The text indicates soprano top left, tenor top right, alto bottom left, and bass bottom right. The registry, or fit, of the notes was perfect, and the effect of the whole was admirable. 
This expensive double process, however, was superseded about five years later by another, simpler one, involving only one impression. In 1511, Petrucci left his plant at Venice in the hands of others and returned to Fossombrone. Two years later, he obtained a patent from Pope Leo X for all the printing in the Papal States for a period of 15 years. Petrucci's last publication, a collection of 83 motets, is dated 1523. His works are rare and highly valued as antique specimens of printing, and the man himself is also remembered for the standards of neatness and precision which he established. Pierre Atteignon is said to be the first to introduce music printing by means of movable types into France. In the nine years from 1527 to 1533, Atteignon printed 19 books of motets of various French and foreign masters. These prints are also very rare and historically important. His work was still going on in 1543, but it seems that the famous ballads were soon to take it up. The names not only of printers, but of the engravers and founders of these first music types are justly preserved. Pierre Autain was engraver for Atteignon, and Etienne Briard, a founder at Avignon. Briard furnished the first known specimens of round notes, in place of the usual quadrangular shapes, and these were used for the first time in printing the works of Carpentras in 1532. This, however, was an exception, as the round notes were not generally introduced into print until about the year 1700. Lebet was another well-known type founder. His types were of the sort which printed notes and lines simultaneously. Each individual type contained a note and a portion of the staff, but later Lebet adopted Petrucci's method of double impressions. Adrian Leroy, a lute player, singer and composer, appears as the next printer of renown in Paris after Atteignon. Leroy presently joined forces with another follower of the craft named Ballard, incidentally marrying the daughter of the house, and in 1552 the firm obtained a patent as sole printers of music for King Henry II of France. This patent, frequently renewed, remained in the Ballard family until it was abolished by the French Revolution more than 200 years later, and the types of Lebet, printing both notes and lines at once, purchased by Pierre Ballard in 1540 for 50,000 livres, were still in use in 1750. One cannot help suspecting that these types, excellent as they must have been, grew old-fashioned long before they were laid aside. But monopoly has its uses. There was no one to complete on equal terms with the distinguished and influential ballads, so there was no use to them in making expensive changes in type. For more than two centuries then, the Ballard family held an important place as printers of music in France. The famous Orlando de Lasso visited them. Lully's operas were printed by them, first from movable types, later from copper plates. In early days of the firm, Leroy himself wrote an instruction book for the lute, which was translated into English in two different versions, one by a writer named F.K. Gentleman. Leroy also wrote an instruction book for the guitarne, guitar, and a book of air de cour for the lute, in the dedication of which he said that such airs were formerly known as voix de vie. In England, 
Thomas Tallis and his pupil William Bird, obtained in 1575 a monopoly for 20 years of all music printing done in the realm. The invention of printing meant, as we have said, that music was no longer centralised about the church. Yet it has to be granted that one of the greatest impulses music has ever received came to it in the early 16th century from a new religion, an impulse which, destined to be checked for a while, though not killed, by the horrors of religious warfare in the next century, was to gain thereafter ever more and more strength, and lead at last to truly magnificent heights in the work of Johann Sebastian Bach. The new religious movement to which we refer was the Protestant Reformation, under the leadership of Martin Luther. We have said consciously that music received thereby a new impulse. To hold that music was entirely reconstructed by Luther, that he discarded all the forms and technique of music that had been up to that time developed in the art, is quite as mistaken as to hold that he wholly discarded the Roman ritual and built up a new and independent service. The change which the Reformation brought to music was like the change it brought to the service, far more one of spirit than one of form. Luther's reform was essentially to abolish the mediation of the priesthood, to clear from the service, in so far as possible, all that might stand between the worshipper and his God, to give freedom to the intimate personal communion between God and man, which the northerner naturally feels and practices. In this respect, Luther's reform would theoretically restore all music in the service to the congregation. But Luther was dearly fond of music, of, so to speak, the best music. His favourite composers were Josquin de Pré and Ludwig Senfel, both contrapuntists of enormous skill. Their music was a worthy adornment of the service. I am not of the opinion, he said, that on account of the gospel, all the arts should be crushed out of existence as some over-religious people pretend, but I would willingly see all the arts, especially music, in the service of him who has created and given them. Congregational singing is anything but an art, often indeed is hardly music, Luther had no intention to dismiss trained choirs from the churches and give over all the music of the service to the untrained mass of worshippers. The trained choir, therefore, was retained in all the Lutheran churches, which could afford to pay for one, and music for these choirs, that is, artistic music, often music written by Catholic composers in complicated, contrapuntal style, held an honoured place in the Lutheran ritual. The personal, intimate spirit from which the reform drew life, however, found an expression in music. To the congregation was allotted a greater or less portion of song. It will be remembered that the early Christians sang together, and that not until the 7th century was the privilege taken from them and restricted only to a trained choir. The German people, as a matter of fact, seem never to have quite given up their share in the musical part of the service. At some of the great festival services they joined in the Kyrie and in the Alleluia, and very early it became the custom to insert German verses in the liturgy at these places. Thus there developed a literature of German hymns, sometimes partly German and partly Latin, as the following old Easter hymn obviously interpolated in the Kyrie. Christ ist erstanden von der Mate alle. Des sollen wir alle froh sein, Christ soll unser Trost sein. Kyrioles. Halleluja, Halleluja, Halleluja. Des sollen wir alle froh sein, 
Christ soll unser Trost sein, Kyrioleis. In connection with the mystery plays, other hymns were written, such as the following cradle song, part German, part Latin, and part nonsense. In dulce jubilo, nun singet und sei froh, unses Herzens wonne liegt in precipio, und leuchtet als die Sonne matris in gremio, alpha et o, alpha et o. About these hymns there was woven a sort of religious folk music. By the time of the Reformation there was a whole literature to draw from, and Luther needed only to organize and standardize many of the hymns which had been familiar to the people for generations. To these he added others of his own writing. The music was drawn from all sources, practically none was especially composed. Luther had, to aid him in compiling his hymn book, two famous musicians, Konrad Rupf and Johann Walter. In 1524, these two men were his guests for a period of three weeks. Kurslin writes, While Walter and Rupf sat at the table, bending over the music sheets with pen in hand, Father Luther walked up and down the room, trying on his fife, to ally the melodies that flowed from his memory and his imagination with the poems he had discovered, until he had made the verse melody a rhythmically finished, well-rounded, strong and compact whole. Here we have a picture of the German hymn tune, later called the chorale, in the process of crystallization. The devil does not need all the good tunes for himself, Luther wisely remarked, and he drew from all sources, secular and sacred, for his melodies. The same breadth of choice was likewise exercised by his followers throughout the century. A song sung by the foot soldiers at the Battle of Pavia became the Durch Adams Fall ist ganz verderbt. The chorale melody, Von Gott will ich nicht lassen, can be traced to an old love song, Einmal tät ich spazieren. A love song, Mein Gemüt ist mir verwirrt von einer Jungfrau Saat, by Hans Leo Hassler, became the choral melody to the funeral hymn Herzlich tut mich verlangen, and later the same melody was set to Paul Gerhardt's hymn O Hauptvollblut und Wunden, and in that form holds a leading part in Bach's St. Matthew Passion. Nor were the chorale tunes taken from Germany alone. Favourite part songs of Italy and France were appropriated and set to German words. The hymn book, compiled by Luther, with the help of Rupf and Walter, were published in Wittenberg in 1524. It was intended for church use, and that the compilers had the choir, not the congregation, in mind, is proved by the fact that all the tunes are contrapuntally set, with the melody as cantus firmus in the tenor, that is to say, in the middle of the music, not soaring triumphantly aloft majestically to guide the congregation. We have therefore in these chorales of Luther not a new form but a new spirit. How great a part the congregation ever actually took in them is open to discussion. Doubtless in those churches where there was no skilled choir, congregational singing played an important role, but it seems likely that in those churches where there was such a choir, congregational singing was kept as much in the background as possible. In 1586, Lucas Osiander published a set of 50 chorales, set contrapuntally in such a way that the whole Christian congregation can always join in them. 
This was obviously a kind attempt to bring the more or less neglected congregation into the musical part of the service. In Osiander's arrangements, the melody is in the soprano, but the setting is still too intricate for general use, and the same rather condescending, yet still lofty attitude toward the congregation is characteristic of all composers down to the time of Bach. The question of just how the congregation sang those chorales allotted to them is also in doubt. It is hardly possible that in the first half of the 16th century the organ accompanied them. The organ was still far too imperfect to attempt polyphonic playing such as would afford a harmonic support to the singers, who we may presume sang only in unison. It is more likely that the organ and the congregation alternated, or that the choir and the congregation sang in turn. Toward the end of the century, attempts were made to have the choir lead the congregation, and then later, in course of time, the organ was perfected and was used for accompaniment, coming soon to drown out the choir, which had little chance to maintain a leadership over the mass of singers on the one hand and the organ on the other. Thus the organ finally took the leadership. In its new position, it no longer alternated with the congregation, and the skill which organists had had an opportunity to show in the solo passages, alternating in the old days with the congregation, was now concentrated upon the prelude. In this way, the foundation for a characteristically German art form in organ music, the chorale prelude, was laid. Though Luther was too much of a musician to be willing to give over the music of the service to be mishandled by a crowd of untrained singers, he nonetheless intended his chorale melodies to enter into the lives of the German Protestants. Thus, while on the one hand we have Luther's own book and subsequent books in the same contrapuntal style, on the other we have hymn books in which only the melody was written, and which carried the noble old tunes to every hearth and home throughout Protestant Germany. The first house hymn book appeared a short while before Luther's church book. It was compiled by Luther's friend, Justus Jonas, and was called the Erfurt Echeridion. Among the hymns contained in it were two old Latin hymns, already mentioned in a previous chapter, the Veni Redemptor Gentium by St. Ambrose, and the Media Invita by Notke Balbulus, both, of course, done into German. An interesting collection was published in Frankfurt in 1571, with the preface, Street songs, cavalier songs, and mountain songs transformed into Christian and moral songs for the abolishing in the course of time of the bad and vexatious practice of singing idle and shameful songs in the streets, in fields, and at home, by substituting for them good, sacred, and honest words. The chorale melodies, indeed, became the property of the Germans. They were coloured with the sentiment of a whole race. They took on a nobility and a dignity. They seemed to germinate new life, and finally they became the glory of a lofty art, based on the skill of the Netherlanders, modified and adorned according to a new style soon to be perfected by the Italians, and infused with rich, warm life, flowing from the very hearts of the German people. The Protestant Reformation did not then at once alter the form of church music in Germany. Other influences sprung from Catholic Italy were to be far more powerful in that respect. Even the tendency toward harmonic writing, toward emphasising the progression of chords rather than the interweaving of melodies, which the chorale melodies undoubtedly furthered, was a tendency very evident in Italian church music of the time, notably at Venice, was indeed a mark of the time. 
The true significance of the Lutheran reform in the history of music is that it laid music open to a flood of genuine strong feeling, personal, intimate, intensely human feeling, which, little by little during the next two centuries, in spite of the horror and agony of persecution and warfare, permeated every vein and artery of music, and filled them with vital warmth and glowing colour. During the Thirty Years' War, only the hymn and the chorale melody escaped destruction in Germany, and these survived because they were actually a part of the people, and could cease to exist only when the race had been stamped out. In France and in England, the Protestant movement had far less influence upon music than in Germany. In France this seems to be explained by the fact that the French had not, like the Germans, a literature of native hymns, but had to construct their hymn-book from the Psalter, and that they had a more slender stock of genuine folk-song to draw upon. Zwingli, the leader of the Swiss Reformation, which was to win the support of the Frenchman Calvin, was not in favour of music, and his followers were ruthless in their destruction of organs and collections of music. Calvin, on the other hand, had in regard to music more the point of view of Luther. He drew freely from the Lutheran hymn-books, both melodies and words, but especially in favour of metrical versions of the Psalms. These were set to music often excellent and finely harmonised. Among the Calvinistic psalm writers, Clément Marot is most famous. It was he who, as court poet to Francis I, made several versions of the psalms into the styles of ballads, which won great popularity by their novelty and were set to gay tunes and sung by the people at court. Subsequently, in forced exile at Geneva, he added nineteen more to the collection of thirty he had already written, and these were later supplemented and arranged in final form by Théodore de Beza. Most conspicuous among the musicians connected with the movement in France were Lois Bourgeois and Claude Goudemel. The latter may have been a Netherlander and a pupil of Josquin, and he was killed in the massacre of St. Bartholomew in Lyon, 1572. Bourgeois composed many melodies himself to the Calvinistic hymns and set them more or less simply in four parts. Gudemel, on the other hand, composed elaborate settings in the style of motets with the melody, seldom his own, in the tenor. The English, like the French, relied upon metrical versions of the Psalms for their hymn-books. Furthermore, the beginning of the Reformation in England was complicated with political motives and the movement was, for a long time, simply a break from the Church of Rome, rather than an outburst of religious convictions. Yet, after the suppression of monasteries between 1536 and 1540, there was something of the same destruction of organs and music which had wrought such havoc in Switzerland, and a general condemnation of elaborate church service. The first attempt at hymn tunes was the Gusli Psalms of Coverdale, drawn largely from Lutheran sources. Under Edward VI, 1547 to 1553, began the organisation of the Anglican Church and the drafting of liturgies in English. The movement was checked by the reign of Mary, but under Elizabeth resulted in a standard ritual which called forth the best musical genius of the country. An elaborate setting of the canticles, etc., used in morning and evening prayer, was encouraged and a new art form, the musical flower of the English Reformation, the anthem, resulted from the setting of the variable portions of these services. 
the great spirit of the italian renaissance which was essentially a spirit of freedom and joy in individuality thus took shape in germany england and france and laid a hand upon music as it had already done in italy on every hand it scatters its seeds which will take root and later flower elements of form and design rich chromatic alterations of harmony splendid dramatic effects of answering double choirs are woven into the intricate web of netherland polyphonic music touching it with colour and fire making it fertile with new and vast developments but all is gradual the art grows slowly and only slowly changes amid the turbulent restlessness the experiment and daring the old ideal the ideal of the monasteries and the great cathedrals still awaits perfection the touch of lasso and of palestrina we have seen that petrucci's first publication of fifteen o one contained ninety-six pieces most of which were by okegum hobrecht joskan isaac and others such as giselan la rue alexander agricola brumel krein by far the most part netherlanders this was in venice we need no further evidence of the popularity of the netherland art in italy the netherland style had become by this time the standard style of europe and during the first quarter of the sixteenth century netherlanders still held sway over the development of music there were pupils of Josquin in the netherlands in france in spain in italy and in germany his music flowed over the face of europe and his art penetrated to all the courts and into all the cathedrals and upon all his pupils the spirit of the renaissance was at work thousands of madrigals of love songs drinking songs and hunting songs came crowding from their pens and jostled masses and motets in confusion program music was in the air songs of battle songs of gossiping women of birds of shepherds and of shepherdesses it is hardly surprising that music for the church began to take on colours more and more brilliant it is more surprising that the old ideal of exalted polyphony still endured and still called men to its standard some of the pupils of Josquin are worthy of separate mention perhaps the most distinguished of them was nicolas gombert he was a netherlander by birth we find him in the service of the sovereign of the netherlands later in the royal chapel at brussels in fifteen thirty he was master of the boys at the imperial chapel in madrid and afterward probably first master in the same chapel in fifteen fifty six he was back in his own country again where a few years after he died a large number of his works from special editions of the sixteenth century have come down to us and some of his manuscripts like so many other treasures of this period are in the munich library his work for the church is characterized by a gentle harmonious beauty and fetis called him the predecessor of palestrina especially on account of a beautiful pater noster which is marked by a lofty religious sentiment he was very successful as a composer of motets and in his secular works showed a tendency toward tone color effects program music especially in his chansons le berger à la bergère and les chants des roiseaux benedictus ducis another netherlander and pupil of josquin born at bruges in fourteen eighty was distinguished by the musical brotherhood of antwerp by being elected prince of the guild the highest honour an artist could achieve at that time in the netherlands leaving antwerp in fifteen fifteen 
he appears to have visited Henry VIII of England, and later to have been in Germany. There is some difficulty in distinguishing the works of Dusis from those of Benedictus Appenzelder, owing to the peculiar custom of the time of signing manuscripts only with the Christian name. It is generally conceded, however, that Dusis composed a funeral ode on the death of his master Josquin, also a motet for eight parts, Pecantum me quotidie, passion music, and settings of the Psalms, the earnestness and nobility of which justify his fame. Jean Mouton, another pupil, was born probably near Metz in Lorraine, became chapel singer to Louis XII and Francis I of France, then canon of Terouanne and afterward of Saint Quentin. His works show him to be a master of counterpoint and a worthy pupil of Josquin. Petrucci printed five of his masses in 1508 and later more than twenty of his motets, and Atteignon included his compositions in the third book of a famous collection of masses published in 1532, and also in a collection of motets which appeared somewhat earlier. A few masses in manuscript are in the Munich Library. A large number of his motets have been preserved, justly valued for their artistic and effective qualities, which in some instances closely resemble those of his master. His pupil, Adrian Willert, was one of the most gifted and one of the most influential composers of the next generation. He may be regarded as the founder of the Venetian school of composers, who played such a brilliant part in the history of music during the 16th century, who were experimenters and innovators, whose energy opened many a new channel to the course of music. The influence of Josquin thus passed to Venice. Adrian Willert, born probably in 1490 at Roulers in Belgium, first studied law in Paris. Afterward, he adopted music as his profession and became a pupil of Jean Mouton. In 1516, we find him travelling in Italy, visiting Rome, Venice and Ferrara. There is a story to the effect that in Rome he heard a motet of his, the Verbum Dulce et Suave, sung by the papal choir, whose members believed it to have been written by Josquin and that they refused to sing it again when they discovered it to be by an unknown composer. If this story be true, it may be added here that Willert lived to see the day when his compositions were considered entirely worthy of attention, even from the most distinguished body of singers in Christendom. That time was not yet come, however. Willert left Italy, taking service as chapel master to King Ludwig II, ruler of Hungary and Bavaria, but in 1526 he was back again in Venice, where in the following year he received the appointment as first chapel master of the Basilica of St. Mark, at a salary of 70 ducats, about $160. This was later increased to 200 ducats, about $460, which was considered a princely income. For 35 years the master kept at his post, although twice during that time, once in 1542 and again in 1556, a longing for his native country drew him back to Belgium, it was his hope, indeed, to spend his last years in Bruges, but he had taken root too firmly in Italy. Friends, admirers, and patrons urged him to remain in Venice, and it was there in 1562 that he died. The Basilica of St. Mark was already ancient when Willert came to Venice. Founded in 830 to receive the relics of the second evangelist brought from Alexandria, rebuilt 150 years later, it had received its permanent form about the middle of the 11th century. Five hundred years had but increased its beauty and added mellowness and historic interest to its charm. 
externally its domes and pinnacles, its encrusted marbles and pillars, its bronze horses and many-coloured arches, constitute a unique and splendid monument of history. Within its walls, statues, columns, crowned with capitals from Greece and Byzantium, and rich mosaics, blend in a beauty at once impressive and magnificent. The interior is not large, 205 by 164 feet, but it is particularly well adapted to the use of the two organs which are placed opposite each other. This circumstance suggested to Willett the device of dividing his choir so as to contrast the mass effect of the united voices with antiphonal singing. With this device, happily carried into effect, there developed in time, under Willett's hands, a new style of composition for two choirs. It was this style which continued in vogue for more than a century, and formed the standard and became the peculiar characteristic of the Venetian school. In his early experiments with the divided choir, Willett made use of the Psalms, whose poetical form, with the parallel half-verses and refrains, seemed especially adapted to antiphonal rendering. Following these, he composed hymns and masses, not after the manner of the eight- or ten-part compositions known in the Netherlands, but works specially adapted to the double choir, each part complete in itself, each combining with or opposing the other, and yet creating an impression of unity and centralization. This was actually a new artistic creation, and by reason of it, Willett became almost the idol of the Venetians. They called his lovely music Liquid Gold, adapted his name to Messer Adriano, honoured him with verses and public addresses, and, in his old age, besought him to leave his ashes to the city in which his artistic triumphs had been achieved. Willett's experiments with double choir effects had a profound and lasting influence upon the development of music. In the first place, owing to this, devices of imitation and canonic progression which had so long been the most prominent feature of ecclesiastical and secular music became secondary in importance to chord progressions. The reason is obvious. To get the best effect with two answering choirs, the section which each sings must not be long and complicated, but relatively short and clear-cut otherwise the effect of balance or of echo is lost, and in these relatively short sections there is hardly time to accomplish elaborate polyphonic development. Even if there were, the polyphonic effects are far too subtle to be easily recognised in echo or answer. The tendency in writing music for two choirs was therefore toward a simple style, clearly balanced, with certain definite harmonic relationships, which could not fail to be recognised when repeated. The composers of the Venetian school were almost within reach of the harmonic idea of music, which rose clearly to supremacy only late in the next century. They were already breaking away from the ecclesiastical modes, not only by thus trying to write in a simple harmonic style, which was founded nearly on our ideas of tonic and dominant, but also by enriching their harmonies with chromatic variations. Willett thus stands out as one of the founders of what has been called the coloristic or chromatic school of the 16th century. In his music, and even more in the music of his followers, the old modes are constantly altered, and with them the practice of musica ficta, already mentioned, reaches its height. It meant the crumbling of the model system. It must not, however, be supposed that Willett abandoned entirely the traditions of the Netherlanders, and that he gave up writing in the complicated style altogether. He indeed employed imitation and canon, but more casually. 
often only at the entrance of short alternating sections. His voice parts then proceeded in solid chord pillars, as Naumann has happily said, in a style markedly in advance of the old contrapuntal conceptions. In him, therefore, we have a brilliant example of the old style worked upon new impulses, by the spirit of the Renaissance, the desire for rich colour and varied, beautiful form. Willett was an industrious composer, and his works go far toward making the period from 1450 to 1550 the golden century of the Netherlands. Masses, motets, psalms and hymns, madrigals and canzone are all well represented. One unusual composition for five voices, in the form of a narrative based on the Bible story Susanna, seems like an early prophecy of the sacred cantata, although the treatment is severely hymn-like and not dramatic. As a writer of madrigals and of frottele, Willett's position is discussed in another chapter, though it may be said in passing that in these, as in his sacred music, his individuality is marked and his knowledge and musical skill evident. Though a northerner by birth, Willett became the founder of a school characteristically Italian, and his work seemed to his contemporaries to embody the very spirit of Venetian life, in its richness and variety. He brought to the Italians the inheritance of the Netherland art, turned it into new and interesting channels, and revealed to later masters what possibilities of colour lay hidden under the strictness of its laws. Upon the death of Willett, his pupil Cipriano di Rore was appointed to the high office at St. Mark's. Works of di Rore, including madrigals, motets, masses, psalms and a passion according to St. John, were held in high esteem by his contemporaries, especially in Munich, where they were frequently performed under the direction of Lassou. Duke Albert of Bavaria caused a handsome copy of a collection of his church compositions, graced by a portrait of the composer, to be placed in the Munich library, where it still remains. Following di Rore at St. Mark's came Giuseppe Zalino, a member of the Order of Franciscan Monks, also a pupil of Willert, and a theorist of great importance. Few of his compositions have survived, but his theoretical writing, Instituzione Armonica, Dimostrazione Armonica, and Supplementi Musicali, remain in an edition of Zalino's collected works, published in four volumes in 1589. There are also in manuscript French, German, and Dutch translations of the Instituzioni, which contain, besides an important discussion of the third and the major and minor consonant triad, a clear explanation of double counterpoint in the octave, twelfth, and in contrary motion, of canon and double canon in the unison, octave, and upper and under fifth, with numerous examples based upon the same cantus firmus. Baldassaro Donati and Giovanni della Croce, both distinguished musicians, in turn succeeded Zalino as Maestro di Capella at St. Mark's. Elsewhere in Italy, important composers appear, native Italians who bring the Netherland art the Italian gift of melody and sweetness. Constanzo Festa, a Florentine, occupies an especially important place. Riemann says of him, he can be looked upon as the predecessor of Palestrina, with whose style his own has many points of similarity. 
he was the first Italian contrapuntist of importance, and gives a foretaste of the beauties which were to spring from the union of Netherland art with Italian feeling for euphony and melody. Constanzo Porta, a pupil of Willert, was successfully maestro of the Franciscan monastery at Padua, and of churches at Ravenna, Ostimo, and Loreto. Gafori, or Gafurius, 1451-1522, cantor and master of the boys at Milan Cathedral, left many theoretical writings of great value. Arkadelt, already mentioned as a writer of madrigals, composed a volume of masses, published both in Venice and by Ballard and Leroy in Paris in 1557. Jacob Clemens, better known by the name of Clemens non Papa, to distinguish him from the Pope, a fact which attests in a jocular way his popularity, was a Netherlander, and one of the most famous composers of the epoch between Josquin and Palestrina, leaving to posterity a large number of masses, motets, and chansons, besides four books of hymns and psalms, the melodies of which were taken from Netherland folk song. Meantime in Germany we find also musicians of distinction, though as yet none of the very first rank. One of the oldest of these was Adam von Fulda, a learned monk, known both as a composer and theorist, and the author of at least one highly esteemed motet, O Vera Lux et Gloria. Heinrich Fink, Thomas Stolzer, Ludwig Senfel, and Heinrich Isaac all deserve an honourable place in the history of German music of the late 15th and early 16th centuries. Isaac, though for some time considered German, was born in the Netherlands, probably about 1450, and was one of the most learned of the contemporaries of Josquin. He lived for a time in Ferrara, afterward becoming organist at the court of Lorenzo the Magnificent. From this post he went to Rome, and finally entered the service of the Emperor Maximilian I at Vienna. Petrucci printed five of his masses in 1506, and included many of his other compositions in collections published early in the century. Manuscript works are in the Munich, Brussels, and Vienna libraries. His part songs were considered models of their kind, and are not lacking in interest even today. It is to Isaac we are indebted for the lovely Innsbruck Ich muss dich lassen, used as a hymn by the followers of Luther and by Sebastian Bach in the St. Matthew Passion. Ludwig Senfel, born 1492, died about 1555, a pupil and the successor of Isaac at the court chapel of Maximilian I at Vienna, was later chapelmaster at Munich. According to Riemann, Senfel was one of the most distinguished, if not the most important, of the German contrapuntists of the 16th century. He is further remembered as a friend of Luther. A great number of his compositions are preserved, among them being masses, motets, odes, songs, and hymns for congregational singing. The work of the brilliant Clermont Jeannequin in Paris was largely secular, and will be treated in another chapter. It may be remarked in passing that types of composition perfected by him were to have great influence upon instrumental music before the end of the century. In England, John Merbeck died 1585, Christopher Tye died 1572, Thomas Tallis died 1585, and William Byrd died 1623, match the Netherlands in skill and bring to their music not only the spirit of the new age, but the peculiar melodiousness which has always characterised English music. 
the works of Tallis became great favourites, and in the famous English collections of music for the virginals, toward the end of the century, several of his vocal works appear as transcriptions. Bird must be ranked as one of the most daring composers of the time. Though he conformed to the new religion, he remained at heart a Catholic, and his great works are akin to those of the greatest Catholic composers on the continent. He has indeed been called the Lasso of England. Here too must be mentioned, though belonging almost more to the next century, Thomas Morley, died 1602, John Dowland, died 1626, and perhaps the greatest of all English composers except Henry Purcell, Orlando Gibbons, died 1625. All these men were composing at the end of the century, especially madrigals and other secular forms famous not only for their great technical skill, but for their remarkable sweetness and expressiveness. They were all, moreover, skilful instrumentalists, and brought music for the harpsichord to a state far advanced beyond anything on the continent. John Bull, died 1628, was not only a master of the art of counterpoint, but a virtuoso on both organ and harpsichord, whose match could be found only in Andrea and Giovanni Gabrielli in Venice. Everywhere the Renaissance spirit was at work, but prosperous Venice stands out clearly as the centre of the new movement which so coloured and remodelled music. Effects of double choirs, chromatic harmonies, tendencies toward definiteness of form, and even the combination of voices and instruments within the church itself, all marks of the changes which were affecting the development of music. All signs of the liberation of music from the sway of the church and of its closer relationship with passionate, active life, are first found in the works of the composers who were connected with St. Mark's Cathedral. But these men were really pioneers, and the results of their innovations, though radical and far-reaching, were hardly foreseen. They sowed seeds, so to speak, which were to grow and flower long after their death. We have now to consider how the art of the Netherlanders grew to a present perfection in the works of two men, Orlando di Lasso, and Pierluigi da Palestrina, both of whom, but particularly the latter, pursued an ideal untouched by the modern forces playing upon music about them, an ideal which, moreover, they attained, and by attaining, brought to an end the first great period in the history of European music. End of section 19